Uh, Steve uh, is an engineer at Fermilab. We've been talking about him the last few weeks. He is uh, working on the front end of what's happening in uh, physics and uh, that whole area of science today. And there's some great, exciting discoveries that are taking place in all branches of science. And Steve is right in the middle of all that. And uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit about those exciting things, especially as it pertains to being people of faith in God in the 21st century. How does science, how does scripture, how does science, how does faith, how do those all come together? And Steve is a great guy to uh, come and talk with us about that. He's also, just as he gets started today, he's gonna, he and his wife are involved in a mission of uh, sharing Christ with Muslim people. They have a special love for Muslim people, and they've been opening up doors and dialogue and, and sharing Christ's love. He's going to share a little bit more about that just before he jumps into his presentation this morning. And uh, so let's, uh, let's welcome Steve once again. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Hi. <laughs> oh, boy. Off to a good start. <laughs> you guys can all hear me well, I assume. Okay. Yeah, my name is Steve Kristulovich. I know some of you here. I can't see my... I ran into uh, to Dan Kissel, but I know there's others out here, too, that I know. Um, we're... Um, I'm, it's a privilege to be here today. I want uh, to share with you a little bit about some of the exciting discoveries that we are coming across in, uh, in the field of science, especially high-energy physics. Um, I'm an old guy. I know you couldn't tell, but uh, <laughs> I actually started in this racket in 1967 here at Argonne, an old accelerator called the ZGS that doesn't even exist anymore. And then it was converted into the intense pulse neutron source, and I worked on the cooling targets there. And then in 85, I... I, oh boy, I'm having a time here. In 85, I went to Fermilab, and uh, those guys haven't caught on to me yet, so I'm still there. So, <laughs> My wife, Donna, uh, I'll be joining her. I'll be flying down to, uh, to Missouri to join her right after this, uh, uh, the talk today. I'm sorry she couldn't be here, but um, yes, my wife, Donna, was actually born in Iran. Her mother's from Australia. Her father's from South Carolina, but he was in the field of populations. And, she, uh, and he, she lived all her life. My goodness. What am I doing here? With that? <laughs> yeah, sure, I'm technologically savvy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Gets better. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she was raised in Pakistan, Nepal, Malaysia, the Philippines. Then she came here for her, her, her uh, college uh, days. And then she had a call from God to work overseas among Muslim people. So she went to Pakistan for 13 years as a missionary and three years to Tajikistan. And then we got married six years ago and my wife passed away from cancer. And uh, we served three years in Turkey, in Istanbul. And we're back here now and we're going to be working with Global Initiative, the Assembly of God Outreach to Muslim Peoples. Let me just say that in the back, on the table, there's tons of free literature. Um, all about, you know, what you need to know about Islam. Why do you care? I mean, who cares? Well, <laughs> they're coming all over. God has opened an opportunity here for us to speak to them very freely. And we need to know how to do that as the church. This is the church's greatest hour, I believe. 
I think that we're seeing a, gl a global change. Um, I was looking at some statistics this morning uh, comparing 1970 to, 19, to 2020. Um, in 1970, 33% of the world was Christian, and 2020, 33% of the world will be Christian. In 1970, 19% of the world was atheist and agnostic. In 2020, 9% will be. It's dwindling rapidly. But in 1970, 16% of the world was Muslim. In 2020, almost 25% of the world will be Muslim. So there's where the big growth is happening. It's happening all around us here. And we need to be prepared for it. This is a, an opportunity, again, that, that what God is doing in his time. And um, so let me, let me get on with that. Let me just say that, uh, again, what a privilege it is to be here. I want to talk to you a little bit about faith and revolutionary discoveries in science. And we want to leave time for Q&A, so uh, at 10.55, maybe 10.50, I'm going to cut it, and I want to hear what you want to tell me. So play Stump the Chump with me, okay? Ask me some questions, and, uh, and we'll have some fun with this. I, we, we want to hear what you... And no, let me say right off the bat, no, there are no bad questions, so don't be, don't be shy. You know, the only reason you're the only one with your hand up is because you're the one that has the courage. All the others are wondering the same thing. So just, just ask when we, when we get through. Well, first I want to share with you uh, this interesting little piece of news. This behemoth here is um, a giant 50-foot diameter uh, magnetic ring that will be part of an accelerator complex that we have at Fermilab. It's called G-2. It'll be looking for some new physics, new physics, stuff we have no idea of right now. There was a signal that they found in Brookhaven, New York, which looked very interesting, but sometimes those signals disappear, but they'll never, they'll never be able to get enough data in a, in a reasonable amount of time there, so they're bringing it here to Fermilab. And, whoop, let's go the other way. This is what it looks like going down the street. Started on his journey. They, they take down signs and, and everything, and the crew in back puts them up as the thing comes down. And here it is being loaded onto a barge, and they, they're, in the latest Fermi news, uh, they said, you know, there's an old rumor that, uh, the, that the scientists at Brookhaven had captured a UFO, and this isn't helping the rumor. <laughs> and here it is on a barge headed for Lamont, for Main Street and State Street. They're going to unload this thing. Uh, either it's a four- to six-week journey. They'll unload it either at the end of July or the beginning of August, depending on the weather. Right now, this thing is, is cruising off the coast of Virginia. It'll round Florida. It'll come up the Mississippi, up the Illinois River, up to the Plains River, right here, two miles away from the church. Unfortunately, we tried to tell them to take it past the church so you could see it, but they're going to take it the other way. <laughs> they're going past the Hindu temple. <laughs> So, but you know what? That would be fun to see, wouldn't it? You're going to see something. I heard these, these photos don't do it any justice. When you see this thing in, in reality and the giant crane it takes to lift that thing, it, it's a sight to behold. How can you find out when it's here? If you Google Fermilab, go to the home page, and right there, there will be a feature article called Muon G-2. Click it, go to the bottom, and there's a Google map, and it'll show you where is it now, where is it now, as it's, come, as it's making its way here. 
Should be great fun. So why are we doing all this? Do we have too much money? Is that what it is? No, it's, it's not that. There's exciting stuff ahead. We are discovering. I want to tell you, we live in a time of unprecedented discovery. This is a great age to be alive. I mean, we have challenges, no doubt, that I don't think anybody's seen that we know of. But we have opportunities that no one has ever seen before either. Um, these accelerators, uh, they serve a purpose even in, even in our everyday life. They're used for uh, medicine, for uh, security, such as this. You can scan cargo containers, boom, like that. Um, they're used for all sorts of things. So they have mundane uses, and Fermilab is building a large uh, complex with the help of the state of Illinois to research ways to make new accelerators that are more compact and efficient and powerful. So accelerators are a part of life. You probably don't even realize it. Well, except for us, us old guys who used to be, uh, watch these old black and white televisions, you know, that uh, in the back of that television tube, that was actually an accelerator too. That's what was shooting the beam, but we don't think of it that way. <laughs> anyway, we don't count those. That's, that's like the nothing. But uh, other things that, uh, that, that happen with this technology, um, you know, the World Wide Web uh, was invented by the scientists who were using this. Al Gore showed them how to do it, and, uh, <laughs> and they followed right along. <laughs> it was like falling out of bed. But something else even more impressive is the worldwide grid. You know, to, to do the computation for these giant experiments, no supercomputer could do it. You need all the computers around the world, at least a, a large fraction of the big ones, working together like a giant brain. And that's what the worldwide grid, grid, grid is. Uh, you, how many of you have heard of cloud computing? Yeah, that's the grid. That's the grid. You know, all your files one day, your PC, well, you guys, you guys probably seen these Google Glasses. Yeah, you know, if you haven't, look up Google Project Glass online, and there's a little video at the bottom with a sunset. I'll show you what it's like. When you look at this, it's called augmented reality. You see all kinds of things other, th other people don't see. It's like spending a night at the bar. It's, <laughs> it's, well, maybe it's a little different, but, <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, this is really what's going to happen. It's, life is becoming very interactive. And, uh, and so all your files and everything are, will soon be up on the, on the, on the cloud. And, uh, but don't worry, they've promised they won't look, so you're, you're okay. And <laughs> but here's the, here's the behemoths we're talking about right now. Uh, this is the CERN accelerator. How many of you have heard of the Higgs boson or the God particle? Oh, okay, not many of you. Well, this was in the news uh, recently. Uh, this accelerator in CERN, it actually crosses the borders of Switzerland and France. Uh, this accelerator is the most powerful in the world. Um, it replaced the one at Fermilab, which was the most powerful for 25 years. And we contributed uh, $531 million to build this from the U.S. So we actually have a control room right at Fermilab where we operate the CMS uh, experiment there. And uh, when they were first starting it up in 2008, uh, we were all at a pajama party. Right in Fermi Lab, there was a glass glass wall that we could look in the control room and see all these all the results. And there we all are in pajamas. There's my wife and I right there. And uh, and so it's it's a it's a whole new world. 
But these, these things are phenomenal. I mean, these are huge, huge experiments. This is big science, they call it. Even it, We're at the point now where no one nation can support this field. It takes a global consortium to do all of this. So why are we so excited about all this? Why are we doing this? Well, I want to take you back to 2003. Something came out called the Quantum Universe Report. And I should say that this PowerPoint presentation is on Pastor Jim's uh, computer, so he can print this for you if you want. And all of these, uh, these um, hyperlinks, you can go and you can look into these and more. This is loaded with hyperlinks. But the Quantum Universe Report basically said a revolution is taking place in science. 2003. How big a revolution? They compared it to Copernicus discovering that the sun isn't going around the earth. I mean, that's how big a revolution this is. And I'm going to share with you a little bit about it. Um, it's interesting. Our first director and the founder of Fermilab was a man by the name of Bob Wilson. This building is called Wilson Hall. If you've ever been to Fermilab, you probably recognize it. And uh, this, <laughs> I always kid people. I say, yeah, this is what happens when we turn the accelerator on. <laughs> Just a joke. <laughs> but... Um, it's interesting, they used to have a kiosk at the front door. And Bob, he, he was one of the people who worked on the Manhattan Project. And he was one of those who said, don't drop it on them, do a, a, don't drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, do a demonstration first, and, and, but they, they weren't able to do that. And, but he was profoundly affected by all these things. And Bob was an artist, he was a genius in every right of the word. And Bob saw that philosophy, science, and theology are all asking the same questions. We have reached some kind of an, a crazy, wonderful point in history. And, and we're seeing all these things coming together in a beautiful way. Um, one of the interesting things in science, have you guys ever heard of quantum mechanics? Any of you guys? Those are the guys that change the oil on the quantum cars? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh well. Anyway, quantum mechanics... Quantum mechanics is a, is a field of science that's really spooky. Nobody understands what it means. But it only deals with the very small world. Yet we couldn't, we couldn't even have the things we have today. You wouldn't have computers, lasers, none of this stuff if it wasn't for quantum mechanics. We know rules from it, for, like a cookbook, but we don't know what the rules mean. They don't make any sense. And quantum mechanics has all these bizarre things, but it's only the very, very microscopic, subatomic, atomic, in these, ra these ranges. We actually don't know where quantum mechanics leaves off. How big do you have to get, or does it ever really leave off? These are, these are interesting questions. But basically, it's saying that particles act like uh, both little bullets and like waves at the same time, which are two completely different concepts. How can they be both? So it gives a sort of fuzziness to nature, to reality. Uh, part of this research that we do, we're able to do teleportation now. Uh, in fact, the Chinese have the, have the, uh, the record for the distance. Of, of, but we're able to teleport one particle at a time at this point. The problem is we, we're having trouble getting the information. Uh, the teleportation is instant. It's faster than the speed of light. Instantly, you could teleport someone to the other end of the universe. I mean, this is, this is a wonderful things, and these things are happening. This is like beam me up, Scotty. You know, that's what we're talking about. So all these things are, this is all part of what's, gonna, what's coming right in the future. 
What's even more interesting is we began to think that maybe you can do that same double slit experiment and that time has the same fuzziness. That time itself um, has that sort of wave and particle kind of duality to it. And we're looking at ways now of entangling particles from the past that no longer even exist with particles in the present. So there's these very interesting things that are, that are coming to light about the nature of reality. Exciting stuff. Now the other big theory, and this is funny because back in the, back in the 1890s, believe it or not, uh, you know, those of you like Pastor Jim and I uh, who were there, <laughs> we, uh, scientists believed that they were done with science. Can you believe that? They had come a long way from the days of Isaac Newton, and they thought, well, I've got to wrap up a few decimal points. We don't understand a couple things. That orbit of the planet Mercury isn't quite right. There must be something wrong, but we'll figure it out. That was their attitude. Then in 1905, was called Albert Einstein's miracle year. And he came up with the theory of relativity. And Max Planck came up with quantum, uh, with, uh, quantum mechanics at the same time. And this was always a big battle between these two. Now, relativity, quantum mechanics, the basic idea is that life is digital. Um, it's like if you look at, if you put a DVD in your DVD player and you watch it, you're seeing the rivers flowing and the wind blowing. But when you pull a DVD out, it's just ones and zeros. There aren't, it's an illusion. Well, there's a core theory behind relativity, too, and that there's a cosmic speed limit. You can't go faster than the speed of... Light, yeah, you guys have heard that. And, uh, of course, I just told you we can teleport faster than the speed of light, but that's a different problem. But anyway, what happens if you try to just accelerate to the speed of light is that strange things begin to happen to time. It slows down. In fact, in our accelerators, time is going a 1,000 times slower than it is outside the accelerator. And we need that to do the, to do the physics. We use it every day. This is a field where the extraordinary soon becomes very commonplace. Uh, the other thing that happens is that distance shrinks to zero. If you reach the speed of light, time stops and distance becomes zero. And mass increases. And that's what happened to me. I got too close to the accelerator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> It's, uh, but where do these, now, relativity deals with the very large, the cosmos and all these things. Quantum mechanics, the very small. How do these come together? I mean, we see relativity all the time, and that's working. Here's a picture from the, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope at the center of our galaxy. And right dead center in that picture is an invisible black hole called Sagittarius A star. How do you know it's there? Well, because as it follows these, whoops, as it follow, ooh, follows these stars around it, we can see them whipping around something invisible and hugely massive. I mean, we can actually see these. There's all kind of invisible things out there. One of the things that's interesting from the theory of relativity is that time actually warps, I mean, not time, uh, time and space warp around a rapidly spinning massive body. In fact, we correct for this with your GPS because the Earth is a rapidly spinning massive body. 
And if it wasn't for that, your GPS would be, would be off because it's called frame dragging is the, the, the term for this. But what if you got a really massive body? I mean, like one of these super black holes. And what if it's spinning almost at relativistic speeds, almost the speed of light? Well, we've known since 1930 that you could travel backward in time like that. And in fact, we have found now such, bo oh, gosh, such bodies... And you could, this is sort of representing how it twists time and space into a helix. So if you go backwards in the helix in the opposite way, you're actually going backward in time. Very interesting stuff that we're beginning to see. And, and you know, this is basically our best hope for solving the, uh, the debt. You know, the <laughs> we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> But where does all this come together? I mean, I'm talking about this weird world at the very large and this weird world at the very small. Well, what we think is that at an even smaller scale is where the basis of reality lies. It's called the Planck scale. How small is that? Well, if you took that tree out there, if that was the Planck scale, a proton, one of those little particles inside the nucleus of an atom would be the size of the solar system. So we're talking really small. We don't have any way to get down there right now, but we think that it's at that level, all the laws of science and everything break down. And there's this quantum foam where back and forth, or before and after, left and right, they're all jumbled up. And so we want to get down there because we think that this is where the basic theory is, the real theory that explains everything. To help us do that, Fermilab is using neutrinos. These are mysterious particles and we're, our focus at the moment is to get really good at neutrino physics. And right now, we shoot a beam under the state of Wisconsin, under Lake Superior, and it goes right into a mine shaft a half mile deep in Sudan, Minnesota. And we're studying the neutrinos uh, at that point. Um, this is a very key thing. China's involved. They just came up with a very, very important discovery on neutrinos, this mixing angle that they were trying to come up with called theta-1-3. Uh, they made that discovery, and we're even studying them in the Antarctic. We have detectors strung down almost a mile into the ice, a mile-by-mile mile cube, if you it's actually kilometer by kilometer. But, um, and we're looking at neutrinos that come in from space. We see extremely powerful particles coming in from space. In fact, millions of times more powerful than we can even make with our biggest accelerators here. There just aren't enough of them. So you can get a few of those, and you can get a lot of the cheaper ones that we can make here, and so we study both ends. Um, but space is the other end of what Fermilab looks at. We look at the very small with our atom smashers, and we look at the very large with, uh, with NASA. We, um, we have a project called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. We're mapping the heavens in 3D. And uh, this is showing us all kind of interesting stuff. Uh, we're also looking at the cosmic microwave background. Now this is, how many of you guys have heard of the Big Bang? Yeah, you'll hear it the 4th of July. It's, <laughs> it's um, that's the scientific description of the moment of creation, if you will. Well, from that fireball, there, there continue to be rays from the edge of the universe as it expands that come at us. If, you had, if in the old days you had one of those rabbit ear televisions, and it wasn't tuned to anything, you would see what we called snow, black and white dots flying over the screen. That was the cosmic microwave background, actually. 
And the guys who discovered that got the Nobel Prize. But we're seeing interesting things about that moment of creation. So all these things are revealing a universe that is very strange. And I want to share that with you now. Now, one of the things that we knew going back several decades was that there's something wrong with the galaxies. Uh, we're trying to break the news to God, but we just don't quite know how to, how to let him in on it. But what we've discovered is that all the gravity of all the planets, the stars, everything, should not be able to hold those galaxies together at the rate that they're spinning. You know what a galaxy is, like the Milky Way, big pinwheel of stars? They should be flying all over. But we just kind of said, eh, we'll figure it out later and put it in the back of our mind. But then as we began to study more and look in space, we began to notice something called Einstein rings. And we see that there are, there are deformations in space. It's like space is being deformed by something very massive and invisible. And it's, it's creating these rings, which is what, what you're seeing is the galaxies in back of the object that you're looking at. It's like looking at the stemware on a wine glass. See how it, 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 it creates these rings. And so that tells us, wait a minute, there's something very invisible all around us, but very massive. And what is that? Well, it, it's got a name. It's called dark matter. And as we speak, a new experiment on board the International Space Station has just been put there called the AMS, which is trying to explain what on earth is dark matter. We really still don't know, but it's getting more and more interesting. We actually think, we used to think that, well, dark matter is maybe some special kind of particle or something, and now we're beginning to think, no, this, there, might, there might actually be dark atoms. There might actually be structures out there. Maybe dark, dark galaxies, dark planets, dark light. Boy, that's a trip, isn't it? <laughs> and we're actually looking for, one of the things we're looking for is a double disk around galaxies that might even confirm that. So this dark universe is getting interesting. We see that dark matter, by mapping it out, it's like a web all through space. And all the galaxies and stars are hung on that web like lights on a Christmas tree. And, and that's what we're seeing. But as if that wasn't enough, there's five times as much dark matter as there is normal matter, but then there's something called dark energy we understand even less about that's ripping the universe apart. So all of this makes up over 95% of the universe. We don't have a clue what it is. How incredible. What an amazing neighborhood we live in. This is great stuff. Now we're beginning to see that even the dark energy has different types of energy, apparently. There's the type that, that normal matter can feel. There's types that only dark matter, it seems, can feel. It's almost like we have different types of energy, different forces. We have electromagnetic force, strong and weak nuclear force, gravity. Seems like dark forces come in all these different varieties, too. And from looking at all this, we begin to see some really strange stuff. What we see, number one, is uh, we, well, we found a, a big hole in the universe, a billion light years across, nothing in it, not even gas, no galaxies, no stars. We have no idea what it's doing there. We see that there's something very, very big outside of the visible universe that is sucking hundreds of galaxy clusters to the edge of the universe. We don't know what it is. And so all these things are just coming into, into play. This is, oops, 
This is one that we just came up with a few months ago. This is the largest structure in the universe, called U1.27. This structure is 4 billion light years across, 1.5 billion light years deep. It's a sizable fraction of the universe. Why is it significant? Well, as I, as I mentioned before, we talked about the Big Bang being the scientific explanation for creation, creation of the universe. You know, and that's consistent with Psalms. You know, it says that Jehovah spread out the heavens like one spreads, spreads a curtain. And that's kind of what we see. The universe is spreading. Um, now, it's interesting. Where, where do we get that crazy name, the Big Bang? Well, it's, it's an interesting story. When Einstein invented the... Uh, or came up with, I should say, the theory of relativity in 1905, um, everybody in the world, all the scientists and everybody, just knew that the universe was eternal and static. Yet his, his formula was saying, no, it should either be expanding or contracting. So he fudged the equation. He put something in, he called it the cosmological constant, and we use a fudge factor like that now for something of a legitimate purpose. But his purpose was strictly to try to make his universe stop. So it would be like what everybody knew was the truth. And then in 1920, Edwin Hubble, who was the famous astronomer the telescope was named after in space, said, hey, Yale, come on up here to Mount Palomar. I want to show you some interesting stuff. He proved to him the universe is expanding. And Einstein said, that was the biggest blunder of my career, not to believe my own theory. But what's so interesting about that, why was that significant? Well, if it's expanding, that means at one point it had a beginning. It started from somewhere. Now the universe was no longer eternal. Well, that matches what God says too in the Bible, isn't it? It says, he, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But this didn't sit well with scientists, especially materialist scientists, especially in the Soviet Union. And so they began to deride this idea. Oh, the universe is expanding. Yeah, some big bang. That's how it got the name. Today, we don't laugh at it. We just know it's got a silly name. But we know it's a fact. The universe is expanding. In fact, it's accelerating. We found out just recently it's expanding faster and faster. That's a surprise. That's where dark energy comes in. What's interesting about that, though, Einstein began to think about that. He said, well, you know, if it, it was an explosion, then everywhere you look in the universe should look just about the same but this doesn't look like the rest of the universe. This thing is telling us, no, it wasn't a simple explosion. Something else happened at the moment of the birth of the universe. And this is really huge stuff. We're beginning to see things. Scientists today say, we don't even know if the human brain can take it all in. It's just so amazing. Other things we look at at Fermilab, other dimensions. You know, we live in four dimensions, three dimensions of space, up, down, back, forward, left, right, and a fourth dimension of time. How about 11 dimensions? How about 26 or more? Well, our formulas and things tell us there, there probably are. So that means right here you could have, this could be Starbucks right here in another dimension. You wouldn't even have to go a mile down the road. How cool is that? So, <laughs> I mean, any, but you see what, you see what you're seeing here? You're seeing a picture of the universe coming right up in our face. And that is just, what did I do? Oh, sorry. That matches 
what those Jews in the desert who were running away from the Egyptians were telling us thousands of years ago. I wonder how they came across all those ideas. You mean uh, another reality, uh, 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 spirit creatures, the God, an expanding universe, a creator? Oh, it's very interesting, isn't it? But it's coming, it's right here in our face. We're seeing it. In fact, what's so cool about this is they talk about maybe with gravitons, they could actually talk to beings. Because we think gravity permeates all these dimensions. We could actually talk to beings in these other dimensions. It's kind of like a billion-dollar Ouija board. How cool is that? Yeah, well, good thing we don't have to do that. So what are scientists in the end, what are they saying? They're saying, man, if this is the only universe there is, there's something really fishy going on here. This is just, this is just too wild. So the only out that many of them see is, well, maybe there are multiple universes, and this just happens to be a good one. We're in the Goldilocks universe. And we just happen to be here, lucky us. How wonderful is that? Doesn't explain anything, does it? But you know, it was funny. We had a, a, a famous lecturer, Paul Davies, come to Fermilab, and he talked about the concept of the multi-universe. And, and he put it pretty simply. He said, well, we're sitting in a room like this, 200 scientists and engineers. And Paul finished his speech, and he said, let me ask you, he says, is it easier to make a real universe or a simulation of a universe? You, you, any of you guys ever play these computer games like SimCity? where you make your own, you're the mayor of your own city, you can create it right on the computer. Is it easier to build a real city or to make a sim city? Sim city, right? And that's what we all said. Well, it's easier to make a simulated universe. He says, well, then if there are Googles of universes, isn't it astronomically more probable that there, are, that there is a superior being and that we are all just a simulation instead of a real universe? And that this super being grad student, when he gets bored or runs out of funding, he'll pull the plug and we'll all go away. <laughs> Not very comforting. But the point he's trying to make is that you can run, but you can't hide. The fact of the matter is everything. Actually, I could go on for hours, and I'm already over time, so I'm going to stop here. But that is what, that's what we're seeing, is that everything is pointing, pointing to the things that God has told us nanomachines, nanotechnology, all these things coming up. This is the, 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 um, the scripture I'd like to leave with you. This is from Eugene Peterson's Bible called The Message, Colossians 2, 8 through 10. Now, this is a very loose, hip translation, but I like the way it reads because it's so true. It says, watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through the empty traditions of human beings and the empty superstitions of spirit beings. But that's not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in him, so you can see and hear him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to him, that fullness comes together for you too. His power extends over everything. The strangest thing you'll ever see, and I've seen it, is you'll see a Nobel laureate speaker go up and give one of these colloquia, very brilliant men, and, and, and all of a sudden he'll say something strange like, you know, the more we discover, the more pointless it all seems. And that's when you realize, yes, just like it says, the emptiness of the universe without God. It doesn't have any meaning. But we see meaning all around us. You have, to, you have to be trained not to believe 
that this, is, this just came, that this is from a creator. And we're seeing it. Actually, even the most, the most ardent materialist scientists are beginning to say, it's absolutely embarrassing the explanations we have to come up with to avoid God these days. But let me stop here and ask for your, your questions and answers. Um, I think you have about 30 seconds left, so we'll take 12 questions. <laughs> Maybe they'll let me go a little more. But let's, can I ask for some questions? Anybody have any? Yeah. That's a good, that's a very good question. What we're beginning to find is that all the constants have seemed to have changed over existence. The fine structure constant, you know radioactive decay, that's one thing I always used to use to date. We find now that half-life of elements changes every day. It changes due to, due to the neutrino flux from the sun. Who knew it? So we're beginning to see that all these things, that's, ex you know, people say, well, how old is the universe? I don't know specifically. But I can tell you this, it went from being infinitely old in Einstein's day to being 30 billion years old when I was in school to being 13 billion years old now. It just keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And now with all this, we're beginning to say, you know, we really don't know anything. At the moment of creation, it seems like in the universe inflated faster than the speed of light. So, yeah, I... You know what, every, every generation thinks they've got the answer to that question scientifically. I don't put a lot of confidence in it. It's going to change again. That I put confidence in. It's a good question, excellent question. Any, another question? Yeah. Then what we'll do. Oh, the, the, the seven days. Yeah. Well, in my view... I mean, you know, it's, people have different views. I mean, the, the Bible is revealed. Uh, it's, it's, it's revealed truth. So it's accurate, but it's what we do with the explanations that have some latitude. I mean, some people believe that vegetables were made before the stars by the way they read the, the, uh, uh, the accounts of creation. What I, what I see myself is, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So they're here. Then it's, it describes where God is. It says, well, the Spirit of God is now over the surface of the earth. And then it describes everything from that perspective, as I understand it. And the seven days are really the transformation of the earth, as I see it. And what's interesting is on the sixth day, it says that uh, now God created all the animals. And then God created man. And then God brought each one of the animals to the man and the man named it, and then the man decided, no, this wouldn't be a good mate for me, so he brought another animal. And then after he went through all the animals he had created, then he had a sleep fall on Adam, and then he created Eve, who was a mate for him, and then it was four o'clock, and the whistle blew, and the day was over. <laughs> so, I mean, there's latitude there for what we mean by day. And, and what I would say, and this is not... And I would say, don't ever try to make the Bible say what science says, because you're guaranteed to be wrong. There is nothing older in this book, in this world, than a 20-year-old science book. I mean, they're, they're useless. You're guaranteed to be wrong, because if you make it fit science today, 20 years from now, it'll be different. So what you have to do is just look at what is the latitude the Bible's giving you, 
And, and from that, I would look at Genesis 2-4, at the end of that whole seven-day account, it says, now this is the account of the day that Jehovah made the heavens and the earth. So it's calling all seven days as a day, or the six days, anyway. So what does that mean? It's, it means that term, day, is like the way we use the term in my grandfather's day. He actually lived more than one day. But I mean in that period. So there is latitude. Does that mean it is endless ages? No. It doesn't mean that. Uh, it could be anything. I don't know why God took seven days. Why didn't he just snap his fingers and there it all was? But I could tell you one thing. If you believe in your heart of hearts that the universe was created six seconds ago and that we're all here with false memories that never really happened, you are closer to, to what scientists believe is the current age of the universe than Albert Einstein was in his day. So, I mean, you know, it, it just, there, it's a pointless discussion in some regards because there isn't an answer scientifically or biblically, but there is a biblical interpretation that, is, that makes sense to me anyway. And I hope that helps. Maybe I went too far on that. Uh, can I, you had a question. What kind of? Oh, teleportation, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, not someone, one particle. One part, like a proton or something, instantly in another location. Here's the problem with teleportation if you're going to do something complex, like say a water molecule, three particles, you know, or actually it's more than that, but let's call it 3H2O you got to know how to assemble them when they get to the other side. So you need to send information with it. Currently, information is what's slowing us down. But we're, we're working on it. But yeah, yeah, this, this is real stuff. I could go on with stuff that would just blow your socks off if you're wearing socks. And, I mean, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Incredible time we're living in. Yes, more questions. Yes. Very carefully. <laughs> I can't say any more than that, Dan, but it's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, I, as I said before, the Big Bang is really just the scientific name for the moment of creation. And it, just, it, it, it goes along exactly what Psalm 19 says about you know, God spreading out the heavens like a curtain. So yeah, I believe there was that moment of creation. Do I believe the Big Bang Theory the way that we, we explain it now? Um, well, there are several explanations, and that big object I showed you is saying they're all wrong. So yeah, there was more to it than just you know, somebody lit a firecracker and boom, here it all is. There's more to it. So in that sense, I'd, I would say... You know, here's the wonderful thing. Many people I hear again and again say, well, the Big Bang, you know, that's anti-God, anti-biblical. It isn't. It scared scientists to death, materialists. That's why they gave it that crazy name, dude, to downplay it. Because it says the universe had a beginning. And everything to be scientific or philosophically uh, uh, meaningful, everything that has a beginning has to have a cause. When you have a beginning without a cause... The name for that is magic, you know, and that nobody wants to go there. 
And what would be the cause? Because what started at the Big Bang wasn't just matter flying around, it's time and space itself that was expanding. So without time and space, how did you have science? Well, that's where these other dimensions become interesting. Because imagine, and I'm going off here, but let me just share this thought with you. I think we'll take one more, and then that's it. Um, what about, I'm talking about 11 dimensions, I'm thinking mainly spatial dimensions, but what about temporal dimensions? You know, our fourth dimension is time, and it's a strange dimension, because it seems to go in one direction, whereas all the other dimensions, you can go back and forth. But what about if God, what if time for him is not a line, but what if it's like a tabletop? So for every point on our line, he has infinity to deal with it. And he's saying, oh, I wish Dan would finish that prayer already. <laughs> or what if it's a cube? You see, the vastness, I got to tell you, sometimes the stuff comes online. I sit at my desk. We get this online newspaper, which you can get. Go to Fermilab today, look at publications, Fermi, or go to Fermilab homepage, look publications, Fermilab today. Sometimes I just sit back in my seat, and it's like this this reverent awe and fear comes over me, and I say, who is this person that we call our father? He is so other, so incredible, and yet he makes himself so accessible to us. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. But let's take one more. You had a question here? No. My question is about your ears. My ears? Your ears. Oh, my ears. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me you have nice ears. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Your peers at Fermi? Yeah. Are many of them believers like you are? Yeah, there are many believers. Let me tell you something, especially in particle physics, like Fermi Labs in. There aren't many real atheists. What you see a lot of are um, people who have sort of a a panentheistic view. Not pantheistic, but panentheistic. What that means is you believe... You don't believe this is all chance. You think that there's something out there, some, some force that's intelligent, that's doing something, but you don't want to call it Jehovah. Yeah, that's about it. You know? But most scientists really believe that. And I've had scientists that I, I've talked to, and they said, yeah, I'm going to surprise you when I tell you what I believe. And I say, really? And they do. They tell me exactly those things. I thought you were an atheist. And, oh, not me. And now, in some fields, it's a little more adamant, uh, but in, especially in particle physics, yeah, yeah. And but there are real solid Christians too. I mean, firm Christians. We have Bible studies at Fermilab. Everything. It's wonderful. We are so blessed to know Jesus and to have this moment. God is going to reveal Himself in a way nobody ever expected, and we're alive to see it. Wow, how cool is that? Well, thank you. I better shut up or he's going to take me off. (laughs) Get the stuff in the back. (laughs) Thank you, Pastor Jim. You feel like you've just been in a science class? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. um, There's so many different angles, and Steve was just up here pulling this in and this and this and this and taking us sort of on a tour of the universe here from the infinitesimal to the, you know, to the macro far ends of the universe. And, 
it's an exciting time, as he says. And, uh, and let's, you know, there's things on our blog uh, the last couple weeks and this, couple, and this next week. There's some areas where if you want to look into a lot of these things, I have book references, I have website references where you can dig in to some of these things and, it, and show the relationship between all these discoveries, all the, these areas that are being looked at, and how it relates to having faith in God in the 21st century. And uh, so I encourage you to take a look at the blog, the website, and, uh, and then we're going to come into communion right now. And we might ask ourselves, how does everything we've just been talking about here, how does that tie into preparing our hearts to come to the Lord in communion? Well, here's a great statement eloquently expressed by the Apostle Paul in Colossians that I think ties it all together. And this is what he says in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, For by Jesus Christ all things were created, and in him all things hold together. And through him we have peace with, with God through his death on the cross. So this mighty, awesome God who created everything from the small to the great is the same God who out of love for us because of our broken relationship with him stepped into his own creation and allowed himself to be subjected to death on our behalf on a cross so that there would be a way for us to have our sins forgiven and we could come back into a personal relationship with this awesome, mighty, unbelievable, incredible, powerful, but also loving God. And we could find meaning meaning in this otherwise empty, meaningless universe. That's the, that's the gospel, and it brings it all together in unity. And I would like us to stand right now. Uh, we're going to come to...